0: All right, we are in Second Samuel. We're in the middle of chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 16 through 23. That's our text this morning. Second <clears throat> Samuel, chapter 12, verse 16 through 23. The topic we'll find there is this. After his child dies, David worships the Lord, knowing that he will join him one day. The title of our message, Taken Baby Syndrome. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for be encouragement to come this morning about your grace and greatness in the lives of uh, little ones, Lord, who uh, die prematurely. And I know that many of us, Lord, and probably most of us, maybe all of us, have been touched in one way or another uh, in this area. And so I pray that there would be real comfort and clarity of thought as we work through these incredible verses about David and his loss. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and all. Those who agreed said, amen. Miscarriage, ectopic pregnancy, stillbirth, neonatal death, sudden infant death syndrome, fatal childhood diseases and accidents. As I prayed and and realized, every one of us has been impacted emotionally by one or more of these. Without ignoring, and hopefully while being sensitive to, the emotional aspects of the death of a child, I want to talk about the spiritual implications. Namely, I want to answer definitively, and of course, biblically, the question everyone has when a child dies, the question I've been asked many times over the years, is my baby in heaven? King David's experiences with the premature death of his child will be our background. And uh, by the way, just as an aside, you may not think that this is much of a question at all. Uh, if, if you don't, then you've never talked to somebody, uh, another Christian who's told you that by no means is our babies in heaven uh, because there's no basis for which they can be saved. And there are an, a lot of Christians who believe that or who will tell you, hey, we just don't know. We're in the dark about that. Uh, and, and so maybe that's never been your experience. Uh, but there are a lot of people out there who think of this uh, as, as something that can't be true. Babies can't be. There's no way that they can be saved and be in heaven. We're going to talk about that this morning. And I'll do it by organizing my thoughts around two points. Number one, while there is life, you appeal to God knowing he is gracious. And number two, when there is death, you reveal God by showing he is great. Take a look in verses 16 through 19 about appealing to God and see how David approached this. Now, David's adultery with Bathsheba and then his subsequent cover up that included ordering her husband's murder and marrying her. It had just been exposed by Nathan, the prophet. As he left David, Nathan declared in verse 14, However, because by this deed you have been given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Now, how do we deal with the fact that the Bible attributes the sickness and death directly to the Lord? Isn't that a little harsh? Well, it's just like us to shift the blame. I'm not saying that there isn't an interesting and important theological discussion to be had, but the real focus ought to be on the fact that our sin often brings consequences upon an innocent party. It was David who had brought this upon his son behind all of our questions and complaints about human suffering is the fact that Adam and Eve brought sin into the world in their disobedience in the Garden of Eden. From the moment they sinned, God has been working to redeem what they forfeited. He has a masterful plan that involved God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ in order to take our place by dying on the cross. All those who trust in Jesus as their Savior from sin are redeemed. They are saved. But the world itself, itself still waits for the final redemption, and thus sin still exists and brings with it many terrible consequences. Uh, people say, well, wh- you know, where was God? Why doesn't God do something? God is doing something. He has done something. He's come, in the person of Jesus Christ died on the cross so that He could restore what was broken by sin. In our personal lives and then ultimately in the universe that he created. Now the consequences of David's sin begin to play out in verse 15. Then Nathan departed to his house and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with the child, with the uh, God, excuse me, for the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. It's probably best to jump ahead and read David's own commentary and explanation for his actions. It's in verse 22. He said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child might live? But I thought God said he was going to kill the child. Well, he did, but David appealed to God's gracious nature to show him mercy instead. If you're reading the Bible, God sometimes seems to change his mind. For example, a little later in the history of Israel, King Hezekiah falls ill. The prophet Isaiah comes and tells him to put his affairs in order because he is going to die. The king will seek the Lord and we read, And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying, Go and tell Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, I will add to your days 15 years. On another occasion, God will send a reluctant Jonah to the Assyrian capital to tell the residents of the wicked city of Nineveh that their destruction was imminent. After the preaching of Jonah, they repent and God relents from his judgment. God doesn't change his mind. He simply acts in ways that are consistent with His nature. And so looking at Nineveh, God says, that's it. I'm going to judge Nineveh. It's all over. They repent. Well, that's consistent with God who previously has revealed himself as a God of grace, as a God of mercy, as a God of forgiveness. And so he says, well, I have to judge your sin. And then they appeal to God. They say, we're sorry. We repent. We believe you. And he backs it up a notch and he says, "Okay, that's consistent with who I am. This is what I actually want to to do children of israel god said go in there i want you to kill all the people that dwell in that land wipe them out they're all sinners they all deserve judgment and then along the way people like rahab end up getting saved and it's completely consistent with the grace and the mercy of god so god doesn't really change his mind from our perspective it seems like he changes his mind but really he just acts according to his nature Since He is gracious and merciful and forgiving, we can always appeal to Him to consider alternative actions that are consistent with His nature. Prayer can indeed influence God. Verse 17, So the elders of His house arose and they went to Him to raise Him up from the ground, but He would not, nor did He eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do some harm. Sometimes God does not alter the course. Extraordinary prayer and fasting are not magical techniques by which we get God to do what we want. I remember one time when I was a young Christian, I... Uh, ran across some folks up in the mountains where we were living and, and they were involved in a weekend of what they called soaking prayer. Uh, and and it, I, don't, I don't, still don't know what it is, but it was a particular prayer technique that they had come up with called soaking prayer. And, and um, I don't know. But it, it was one of those things where you felt like, I guess I don't know how to pray because I'm not soaking in prayer. I don't even know if I'm wet, you know. Yeah, and 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 there's all these, you know. And so here you are. You're a Christian, and you're you're in love with the Lord, and and you know you're talking to the Lord, and then you you know all of a sudden people are saying, "Well, are you soaking in prayer?" Yeah, I I don't think so. And you feel inadequate, but you know this is extraordinary prayer. David says, "I'm not going to eat. I'm going to lay on the ground." I'm not going to sleep. I'm just laying on the ground before the Lord. Don't touch me. Leave me alone. Uh, It was extraordinary. And he had repented. It doesn't get any better than that. In this case, extraordinary measures did not uh, alter the course that God was on. If you've sought the Lord for something like someone's life and death was the result... It's not because you were insincere or you failed to understand some deeper spiritual method or that you weren't spiritual enough or that you lacked the faith. It was the will of God. We could go so far as to say that God's choice in the matter was the one he deemed to bring the most glory to himself, even though often we do not see it that way at the time. We're going to show this in just a minute. Then was all your praying and fasting for naught? Well, no, because it prepares your heart for God's eventual outcome. It aligns you with the will of God. Now, the child died, it says here, on the seventh day. Was this seven days after the announcement he would become sick, or was this the seventh day of the child's life? Well, many commentators take it to mean it was the seventh day of his life. If so, it's a very interesting point to be made, on the eighth day, A male Hebrew child would be circumcised as the sign of God's covenant with his people. David's child fell one day short of circumcision. It was a reminder to the king that within God's unconditional covenant promises to Israel were many that were conditioned upon obedience. The enjoyment of God's covenants with Israel depended upon obedience. Disobedience brought Discipline. And so it was kind of a, a visual thing, a visual illustration to David that his actions uh, had uh, cut short the blessings that God could have poured out in his life had he simply obeyed God. Now the child died and David's servants did not know how to approach him with the news. By the way, there's, there's a whole separate study in here just about grief counseling. Uh, no one, first of all David's grieving he's on the ground they try and get him up then when he's done grieving they, they try and do something they can't figure David out at all they have in their mind some idea of what David should be doing and how he should be reacting uh, and I think what we need uh, to learn from this uh, is that we need to be very careful in dealing with people in grief because uh, everybody grieves differently. But uh, here the child died and they didn't know what to do. Verse 19, when David saw that his servants were whispering, he perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Now, David could tell something had happened. I want you to note the clear and direct language used by both David and his servants. They used the word dead. David said, Is my child dead? And they said, "The child is dead." They didn't try to soften the blow with a euphemism for death. I remember one time, uh, while I was working as a chaplain, uh, a doctor here telling a woman that her husband, who had been brought to the ER by ambulance, had died, but instead of using the word "died or "dead," he told her, "Your husband is in a better place." She asked him, "Where?" Because she took it to mean that he had been transferred to another hospital uh, that had better facilities and people with a little bit more tact uh, and stuff. And then I think I stepped in and said, no, your husband is dead. That's what he means. He goes, oh, yeah, he died. There was no hope for him. And. Uh, You know, so a lot of times people, you know, you're trying to be nice. You're trying to be kind. They're in a better place. Uh, You know, there's a lot of different ways that we talk about people dying. The best thing to do is just tell somebody, you know, this person is dead. They died. They were killed so that we're clear about what's going on. Pray and fast and weep. Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to you that the child or someone else might live? But in the case of David, Bathsheba and their son, God decided his glory would be more on display in the infant's death. And so we see in verses 20 through 23, when there is death, you reveal God by showing he is great. David's servants misunderstood his zeal in seeking the Lord. They thought he'd be crushed by God saying no to his request that he might even do some harm to himself or to others. Now, I, I briefly mentioned this a moment ago, but again, I want to say that reactions to this kind of tragedy run the gamut. Everyone has their own way of putting things into spiritual perspective. We shouldn't try to force someone into our own ideas of how they ought to react. We shouldn't think that they are not sorrowful enough on the one hand or spiritual enough on the other hand. It's often best for us who are more witnesses of the tragedy, uh, to have what is called a ministry of presence. Just be there for people. I always like to remember Job's counselors. The book of Job is okay for a little while until his friends start to talk to him and try to put things into perspective for him uh, and God ends up rebuking them at the end. I don't want to be rebuked by God for uh, trying to encourage somebody uh, you know, at a time like that, uh, I've been in situations where an individual is, uh, you know, terminal, they're dying, they're, uh, you know, in getting ready to take their last breaths uh, and family members are there and there's there's the family member who has, you know, they're there by the side of the individual night and day, day and night, night and day without sleeping. And then the moment the individual dies, they leave because they can't stand the thought of, you know, their loved one uh, dead. Uh meantime, the brother, the sister, the aunt, the uncle, whoever, they're outside, they don't want to see the suffering. They come in immediately upon the death of the individual and spend time with them after they died. And you and I, we have opinions about that. I have a strong opinion about that, but it's none of my business how people want to deal with death. There's no right way. Some people fall apart. Some people seem more stoic about it. They fall apart later, and so we need to be careful as Christians because a lot of times we want to project onto people how they ought to be acting and reacting based on you know what we believe as Christians. And, and um, it, you know, it, it's really not a time for uh, philosophizing and preaching. It's a time just to be present and to help people through and and, and all uh, and. Uh, You know, David's laying on the ground, and his servants say, hey, we're going to grab him and get him up. He he said, hey, don't touch me. Don't touch me. I'm staying on the ground. I've been in situations before where everybody wants to hug, everybody wants to touch all the time. Some people, they don't want to be touched when they're grieving. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but they get a little bit violent if you touch them. Uh, And so it's it's a... a, These are things people aren't really ready for. We shouldn't have to go through these things. They're tragedies. They're they're horrible. But we can cut each other some slack and say, look, everybody's going to react differently. There's no use us getting mad at each other or judging one another for what's going on here. Let's just be present and try and get through this. Now, David is going to reveal... That God is great in this situation beginning in verse 20 David arose from the ground he washed and anointed himself he changed his clothes he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped then he went to his own house and when he requested they set food before him and he ate David had real spiritual clarity he had been restored and he was ready to serve the Lord he served him first by prayer and fasting for his son. Another little lamb that God had entrusted him with as the king of Israel. Now David would turn his attention to shepherding God's flock, the nation of Israel. If you were here for our study last time, you're familiar with the story. Nathan came and told David that he was a sinner, but he did it in the guise of a story that a shepherd would respond to. He talked about a rich man stealing a a poor man's little pet lamb and slaughtering it for a meal. And David, who had been a shepherd and was to be the shepherd king of Israel, uh, he really responded in a visceral way to that. He said, that guy deserves to die, and here's what's going to happen to him. And then Nathan said, yeah, it's you. This is what you did. You were to be the shepherd king, but instead you took the little ewe lamb from Uriah and you murdered Uriah. And so now David... He, conf- he repented, he confessed, he agreed with God. And from that moment forward, he was back on board. And so when this child died, he said, this is, a, this is one of God's dear ewe lambs, as it were, and I'm going to pray and fast and see if God might not relent and be gracious and merciful. And then after God's decision was reached and the child died, then David said, okay, I've got a kingdom to run. I'm the shepherd king of Israel. I don't have time to commiserate. Uh, I I need to be about the business of serving God's people. Verse 21, then his servant said to him, what is this? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, well, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept for, I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him He shall not return to me. Servants were perplexed. They did not understand David's reasoning. He seemed joyful now that the child was dead. Well, he was joyful, or at least we would say worshipful. He knew something about his child. He knew something wonderful. He knew he would see him again. Now, I mentioned earlier that God does what brings him the greatest glory. The death of this child, David's son, tragic as it was, has been a comfort to countless millions who have themselves lost children. With hindsight, we can confidently say that his death has been powerfully used by God. If you're David, if you're Bathsheba, you don't really fully understand the weight of what God is going to do, not through the life of this child, but through the death of this child. But we do, with hindsight, we look back, I have used this area of scripture, this portion of scripture, countless times to encourage people. Even Christians who right now would say, if you ask somebody, do you believe that if your child died, he or she would go to heaven? They say, absolutely, of course, because you know God is so good and God is so gracious and because of this scripture and that scripture and all. And then their child dies and they have doubts. They have fears because the devil doesn't care. He's happy. He's excited that your child is dead and that your life is topsy-turvy, and he comes in and he hammers you. He's not going to leave you alone. And to be able to go to someone and say, David declared that his child was in heaven, absent from the body and present with the Lord, as it were. It's a tremendous encouragement from the scriptures that is necessary at that time. And and so really, God said, "This this is going to bring me glory. This is going to bring countless millions of people comfort. Now, a lot of times... We try to put death into perspective, uh, kind of in our immediate life. Uh, You know, we say, well, why did this person die? You know, their death can't be in vain. Let's do something so that we can show that their death wasn't in vain. And if that's led by the Lord, that's fantastic. Sometimes you have to wait and look down the road. And maybe sometimes you won't even know how this death brought glory to God. But you have stories like this to show that God only always does what is good and what brings the greatest glory to him and comfort to people. Now, David said, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. We're saying it is a declaration that the child was immediately with the Lord at death. There are some who argue that David's words simply meant that one day he, too, would join his child in death, that death is common to everyone. They take his statement to mean only that death is universal. They see no hope of heaven in this statement. Well, this makes no biblical sense. First, the clear context of his statement indicates he expected to be reunited with his child. His joyful actions indicate he expected to be reunited one day, not just in death, but in eternal life. I mean, you really wouldn't come to that conclusion from reading this. If you looked at what David did, you wouldn't say, well, David just knows that he's going to die too. We're all going to die. If you're in Ecclesiastes, maybe that's that's kind of the tone of that book. Now, we're all going to die. What's the difference? Vanity, vanity, you know. But David says, okay, let's get up. Let's get about the business of life. Let's be joyful. Let's worship. He has a real attitude about what just happened. Second, if you require further proof that David was joyful about a future heavenly reunion, we can discuss David's reaction to the death of another one of his sons a little later on, his son Absalom. Absalom as a full-grown man rebelled against David and sinned terribly. When he was killed, David was grief-stricken. He wept bitterly, even wishing he could have died instead of his son. David had a very different, a very severe reaction to the death of Absalom. Why is that? I believe it's because David was not at all sure of Absalom's relationship with God. He wasn't, except, you know, he he didn't when he heard that Absalom died, he didn't say, "Oh well, He's with the Lord, I'll see him again someday. No, he wept, he was grief stricken. He said, I wish I had died. It's the attitude of a person who sort of suspects that the other person didn't really know the Lord. And in their death has a very different destiny. And so the contrast in David's reactions to the deaths of these two boys communicates that he absolutely believed he would be reunited with his infant son. Verse 23 must be understood as a declaration that David's son preceded him to heaven. Now, technically, he preceded him to the place Jesus would later call Abraham's bosom, where the spirits of the Old Testament saints went to be comforted as they awaited the coming of the promised Savior. Although this passage by itself speaks volumes to us, it's not the only reason we would confidently declare that children who die Go to be with the Lord. Let me survey some other things that point us in this same direction. Jesus gave an extra measure of attention to children while he was on the earth. He claimed they had a place in his kingdom and even used them to illustrate the character of a person who would enter the kingdom. He often took little children in his arms and blessed them. Here's one such passage, Mark 10, 13 through 16. They brought little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Surely I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms and he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. Now here's another thing to consider. This is kind of a mind blower. There's at least one example in the Bible of an unborn child who was saved. In the case of John the Baptist, we read of his actual possession of salvation in his mother's womb before he was born. In Luke 1:15, the angel Gabriel predicts that John would be "quote filled with the Holy Spirit" while yet in his mother's womb. Theologian Wayne Grudem comments, and I quote: "We might say that John the Baptist was born again before he was born. It's crazy." In the case of John the Baptist, we see that a child in the womb, though human, and the inheritor of a sin nature, was definitely saved. In the case of David's seven-day-old son, we see that though human and the inheritor of a sin nature, he immediately went to be with the Lord. It's enough biblically to conclude that children who die are saved. I mean, to me, if I can find one example of an infant who I know the Bible says was saved, then infants can be saved. And I know that John the Baptist, filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, that can only mean... God's not filling people with His Spirit who aren't saved. But how can they be saved? On what basis, since we all inherit sin? Well, salvation's made possible by Jesus dying on the cross and His rising from the dead. Commenting upon the salvation God provides, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.10... To this end, we labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God. He is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. It's an important statement because it establishes that the cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save the entire human race. What Jesus did on the cross is enough to save anyone and everyone. Those who exercise faith, those who believe, are actually saved. Those who do not exercise faith remain dead in their trespasses and sins. The question we are asking is this. What about all those like infants and children who cannot believe because they cannot exercise faith? They're not old enough to exercise faith. Those who cannot believe are never called upon in the Bible to believe. Only adults capable of making a decision are called upon to believe. Infants and young children, and we would add here, anyone who is mentally incapable of making a decision, they are never called upon to believe in order to be saved. Faith has no merit of its own. My faith adds nothing to the salvation provided by Jesus Christ. Salvation is by grace through faith, but faith doesn't add to the work that Jesus did. Its absence in those who cannot believe then would not exclude them from being saved. Is this universalism? Are we saying that everyone then is saved? Well, no, of course not. That's a heresy. I'm saying that in the case of all who cannot believe, God is able to apply the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross without the need for them to exercise faith. And you say, "Well, wait a minute, You know, I don't agree. Well, then you explain to me how John the Baptist was saved in his mother's womb. God applied the cross to him uh, and and all. Now, God himself often distinguishes between the decision-making capacity of adults and children. We find one important example in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. God was explaining to the Israelites that because of their prior decision to disobey God, they said, we're not going into the land. They would never enter the promised land. God, however, would not hold their children accountable for their decision. So Deuteronomy 139 reads, Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there, to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. There are other passages we could cite that speak of children as having no knowledge of good or evil and so not held accountable. Jonah is a good example. Uh, Jonah 4.11, God is concerned about the children of Nineveh. Romans 9.11 uh, says the same thing. They were still sinners. They inherit a sin nature. But when they die, God can save them by his grace based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ without faith that they cannot possibly exercise. Some would argue that the Bible never states a particular age of accountability. Well, that's true. There is no one age at which accountability kicks in because people are all different but it's clear from the passage in deuteronomy that god himself distinguishes between adults who can be held accountable for their decisions and children who cannot am i going out on a theological limb well if so i've got company james strong theologian and famous for the strong's concordance writes this he says the condition of salvation for adults is personal faith Infants are incapable of fulfilling this condition. Since Christ has died for all, we have reason to believe that provision is made for their reception of Christ in some other way. In other words, God doesn't come to a baby and says, believe, knowing that they cannot. He saves them some other way. Another theologian, Dr. Robert Leitner, writes, and he says, faith has no merit of its own. It adds nothing to the complete salvation provided by Christ. Since faith contributes nothing, its absence in those who cannot exercise it does not hinder the sovereign God from accomplishing in them all that he does in those who can and do believe. All who can believe must do so to receive eternal life. All who cannot believe receive the same eternal life provided by Christ for them at the time of death because they are able to neither receive nor reject it. I get a lot of grief on this from those who hold to Reformed theology because one of their essential beliefs is that Jesus Christ did not die for every member of the human race. He only died for those who would be saved. He only died for what they call the elect. So I was pleasantly surprised to read these words by John Calvin, commenting on Romans ten seventeen, which is, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Calvin said this. He said, Paul is not laying down an invariable rule for which no other method can be substituted. And so Calvin believed... That though the normal rule was that an adult, a person, would hear the gospel and exercise faith, he says that Paul wasn't saying that's the only possible way a person could be saved. In other words, God can save apart from a person exercising personal faith, and we say he does, in fact, save, in the case of those who cannot exercise faith, infants and children and the mentally disabled. Now, it's a whole other subject But let me briefly address the question of salvation for those who have never heard the gospel. Evangelicals like ourselves believe that God has given everyone in the world a witness of himself in both conscience and in creation. These are not sufficient in and of themselves to save a person. But if a person responds to the witness God has given them within and without God will see to it that those who are seeking him will receive a greater witness so that they can either reject his offer of salvation or receive it through faith. The scripture we would cite would be Acts 17, verses 24 through 28, where Paul, talking to the intellectuals on Mars Hill, says God has scattered people all over the planet with the hope that they would seek after him and find him. And Paul would talk about in his writings about the witness of conscience. Not a perfect witness, won't lead you to faith in Jesus Christ. The witness of creation, the heavens declare the glory of God. And if a person is sincere and honest and recognizes that there's something going on and begins to seek God, uh, the Bible says that he will be found of him. That God will see to it that he gets a greater witness so that that person who can exercise faith will make a decision. Every human being is a sinner. They're in need of salvation from the moment of conception. Salvation is in Christ alone in his shed blood as the sacrifice and substitute for every member of the human race. Those who can discern between good and evil, who are capable of choosing, are held accountable. They must exercise faith to receive God's free gift of salvation. God, however, distinguishes between adults and children. He does not hold children accountable who cannot discern between good and evil. He does not condemn them to hell for a decision they cannot make. Consistent with this, we see that Jesus called the children to himself and spoke of them as illustrations of those who would inherit the kingdom. We also know that at least one unborn child was definitely saved from his mother's womb, and another child, a seven-day-old infant not yet even circumcised, was declared to be with the Lord at the time of his death. It is therefore much more than mere wishful thinking to absolutely declare from the Bible that children who die prematurely are in heaven and you will be reunited with them one day. The Apostle Paul, when he talked to the Thessalonians about death and dying, he used these words, there's no better words, therefore comfort one another with these words. Let's pray together.